Ryan, thanks very much. Great to see you. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me here. Yeah. So, uh, you know, yourself and Chad and I have been working on the report, so we wanted to kind of dive into that today. But uh, before we do that, just wanted to kind of get to know a little bit about you and uh, kind of how did we get here. So um, you're, you're pretty well known in the industry through Moby Health News, but maybe tell us a little bit about how did you get into journalism and then maybe how did that kind of morph into or evolve into kind of digital health? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I went to school at Boston University, which has a great journalism program. Um, and I took advantage of that a little bit. I was actually a liberal arts major, so I studied philosophy. And, um, you know, here and there, I kind of took a, picked up a journalism class. But I think more than anything, the, the piece that was really pivotal for me in school that kind of pushed me onto this path was, uh, it's not really a study abroad program, but it's similar to that. It was a study in Washington, D.C. program. So I spent a semester um, really being like a reporter, a political reporter, I wrote for a state newspaper, sort of their, um, you know, their DC correspondent, because they're small enough, they didn't have one. And um, I also once one day a week, I worked for Atlantic Media, they had a, it's still around, it's a pretty well known in DC anyway, magazine called National Journal. Um, and part of what they did was they had a twice a day newsletter that I believe they printed out while I was there. I can't remember if they emailed it. Um, during my time, I wasn't involved in the operational side of it, but, but anyway, yeah, I worked in a newsroom that was putting out a twice daily newsletter all about what was going on in Congress that day. And it was called Congress daily. And it was a lot of fun. It was written, you know, very quick items with some personality. It was super inside baseball kind of politics stuff. And so just working with all these old political reporters, you know, I got a real taste for what that kind of reporting and that kind of writing could look like. And this was, you know, 2000. Four, I want to say, so still pretty early days of uh, online publishing, and um, you know, big big media company like that. It was kind of interesting to be there, but you know, I think like a lot of people, like just spending even that semester um, writing about politics, um, I knew it wasn't for me. I didn't really want to spend all my time thinking about U.S. politics, uh, thankfully. But I did love D.C. So after graduating from from VU, I moved down to D.C. And I got a, um, a job more or less right out of school, a couple months out of school. I was really lucky um, at a company called Fierce Market. So you might know Fierce. They've got a bunch yeah. of healthcare publications as well. But um, I was on their, more on their tech side. So they were mostly a telecom publisher when I was there. Um, that was their flagship publication. So I wrote about the wireless industry and um, I helped them launch a series of publications that were more focused um, in, in mobile. And so the, the first one that I did for them was focused on mobile content. And this was all pre iPhone. And back then, if you remember all the like mobile operators were trying to figure out you know, how can we get music on, on these little phones? Um, how can we maybe even get people to watch live TV on their tiny little flip sprint phone? Like I actually had a phone from sprint where I could watch uh, local television on in, you know, 2005. And so it was, you know, terrible user experience but really fun to kind of watch uh, an in industry like that sort of evolve out of, out of nothing, it seemed. And, you know, I, I did that for a couple of years and I really learned both the mobile industry as well as kind of the startup publishing industry. And it was 2008, it was kind of the recession, you know, was underway. And one thing, another thing I had learned at Fierce was that company was started during the uh, dot-com recession. So um, they found that actually a great time to start something if you're able to you can start during a down economy it's a, it's a really great time to build 
Um, so I found myself, you know, still pretty young, 2008, here comes this recession. I thought it was worth taking the risk to start my own little media company. And given all the time I had spent writing about mobile content and seeing all the entertainment companies sort of embracing it, you know, one big industry that clearly hadn't done that yet was, was healthcare. And so that's really how Moby Health News was born back in 2008. Uh, before you even prod further, I was just, um, I had a bit of deja vu here because we seem to have had a lot of guests who've been in DC, been in the middle of politics. So when I look back, Chris Coburn, I think in, in um, interned there, Sarah Islin grew up down the road from Capitol Hill. And then we have Brian now who, who's a, um, who trained there as well. So really interesting. Yeah. And then he, and you're not even the first journalist. We had like Lisa, we had Steve Krauss. Yeah. Small yeah. yeah, exactly. I'm thinking the same thing. And, uh, and so you were there as kind of the industry was changing. And, you know, then, you know, that, that industry's really got, got the hit with the internet and now kind of, now in the, in the last couple of years, journalism is, you know, investigative journalism has become kind of cool again, you know? So um, you've probably ridden that way, but how, how, do you, how do you think about it today in terms of journalism? And, you know, do you, do you enjoy the trying to do the investigative piece or do you enjoy the creative piece or kind of just talk us a little bit before we kind of get into the report itself? Yeah, I think um, Moby Health News you know, the main product of Moby Health News, I think, has pretty consistently been sort of uh, started out as a weekly and then a daily update as to what's going on in the industry. And, you know, I spent all that time really learning, I think, a lot of the players and, you know, sort of the, the shape of the news. And so I think I understood things sort of at that level as sort of the, the daily news cycle. I was, I was an expert on the news is kind of how I thought of it. But what I really didn't have a lot of time to do at the time, even though I spent eight years doing that, was, was going really deep. And so what I do today is, is very different from what Moby Health News puts out. Um, you know, if you, if you only read exits and outcomes and newsletters I put out, you probably will have a good idea of what's going on, but it's not, it's not necessarily super comprehensive. Um, so I sort of trade that for going deeper. And so part of that is, you know, going really deep into particular companies. You know, how did they, you know, what sort of success are they finding? What sort of traction are they finding? What, what is their go-to-market? And then to the best of my ability, uh, using some investigative journalism skills, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what are their uh, financial numbers? What are their user metrics? And, um, you know, what are some of those decisions that maybe help trigger that? So, so yeah, I, I agree. I think that that sort of journalism is, is more in vogue today. I think there's more people doing it. I think there's more appetite for it. People are now willing, I think, to pay um, for that kind of journalism. And maybe that wasn't really the case, you know, seven or eight years ago or even 10 years ago. So um, I've certainly benefited from that. Exits and Outcomes is primarily a, a paid publication. And, and that's really great. I think as a journalist to have someone pay you for your work, it's a very easy, you know, virtuous cycle there. Um, and it does get a little bit more difficult when you start putting sponsors in the mix, you know, it's kind of, you have two different groups you're trying to serve. So um, it's a much cleaner model to kind of focus more on the subscription side. So, so yeah, it's great. You know, I love it. And um, it's been a lot of fun the last year and a half. We're, we're big fans and that's why we're, we're shopping to you, I guess. And it's a very natural, evolution as the industry's kind of evolved to, you know, going deeper, really trying to understand, you know, what stuff actually works and what stuff people will pay for and all that. So maybe, right. um, maybe we'll get into just one more kind of question before we get into the report. One of my sources tells me that um, you have a passion for brewing as well. So yeah. I, want to, I want to dig into that later on because as an okay. Irish person, that, uh, that always uh, piques my interest. 
but uh, maybe just on the idea of the sources, how, how do you, without going into any state secrets or anything, but like, how do you go about trying to get the types of content, you know, without detail now, but how do you try and get, get the type of content you do for exit outcomes, which is actually, you know, so enlightening in terms of trying to join the dots, all the news that's out there, but actually trying to get conclusions. So how do you, how do you go about that? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I think, you know, just at a really high level, one, you know, I think when you're starting something new, you should have some sort of uh, insight as to what's changed in your market or some sort of leverage that maybe others don't have. You know, I, I definitely think I have a pretty big network now, just given all my time in the industry. So I can certainly call on people to help me understand things or explain things. Um, and I do that quite a bit. I think a lot of journalists rely on people as sources for information. And I do that a little bit, but I think more than most journalists, I'm really focused on public information that is already already out there, but um, but is hard to find. And I think, you know, this is a well-known, is a well-understood thing that there is uh, too much information and there's a lot of money to be made and a lot of, you know, services to be built on helping people better, you know, analyze all the information that's out there. But I don't think people are doing that incredibly well yet. I think, especially journalists, they do spend so much time sort of focused on announcements and focused on just interviewing people. Whereas, you know, 2008, when I started Mobile Health News, there was not a ton of, um, you know, information just kind of sitting on companies' websites or sitting in government databases. I mean, just the amount of information accessibility that has changed in the last 12 years is just massive. And who has the time to go find it all and pull it together? And so that's, I figured I did. So I do spend most of my time really digging into government databases, um, using all kinds of different tools to kind of just look for those little details because, you know, you just need a couple to have, uh, you know, a must read newsletter each week. And so I do spend most of my time just sort of digging around, trying to find stuff. And, you know, I mean, even things like, I think one example that I have used a few times I'm happy to share is, you know, a lot of these companies in digital health that are selling to employers, uh, one type of employer in, in the U.S. anyway is a local government. So if you're, you know, some small town in Indiana, you probably publish the contract that you inked with Virgin Pulse so that your employees could navigate their health benefits and have their wellness challenges. Like all of that information is sitting on that town in Indiana's government website in a PDF probably. And you can read the entire contract every number in it, every guarantee, all that. So that's the kind of thing that I'm pretty good at finding. I think those are pretty easy to find, but um, you know, if you do enough of that, I think you can write a really great report on a company like Virgin Pulse, which, which I did a couple months ago. Cool. Yeah, you're like a web sleuth for digital health, basically. I, I mean, I've always wondered, who is the person who goes to that 24th page on your Google search? Or like when someone yeah. releases a 25 page document with like all the fine print and you're like, oh, who's gonna read that? I think we have our answer. And that's <laughs> why we get the detail that we do. Yeah, cool, cool. So let's start to go deep a little bit then. So we're gonna talk about digital therapeutics and specifically prescription digital therapeutics, but let's start there. Like why digital therapeutics? Um, why is the report focused on that? Yeah, why why should why should people be interested? Right, I, you know, I think it's sort of tied up in the the discussion of what what is a digital therapeutic. Um, you know, I think digital health has come to mean so many things. I think people use that term pretty loosely now. You even see it, you know, companies that are building 
um, EHRs, EMRs, they'll refer to themselves as being digital health now. Um, that wasn't always the case. You know, that used to be health IT. And so digital health has just sort of subsumed everything. I think one of the issues with that is if you are a company that's trying to break out, it's trying to prove yourself, um, you know, these terms sort of become meaningless very quickly. And so I think the, the term digital therapeutic is yet another attempt to sort of separate a segment from the pack. And in this case, I think this is referring very specifically to um, digital health interventions. So these are, these have to be things that are, you know, patient facing, they're actually touching the patient. Um, and in particular, I think they're, they're software driven uh, interventions that are, are making some sort of claim about either treating or managing or preventing a disease in the patient. So that's kind of the basic definition that I know the industry has sort of come you know, to a consensus around. But the key to it is they're not just interventions. They also have some sort of evidence that back them up. So these are interventions that actually work. And so the appeal to most people in digital health who have an intervention, um, who wouldn't want to be a digital therapeutic if that label means your intervention works? And I think that's why we're seeing everyone claiming, you know, we're a digital therapeutic too, we're a digital therapeutic too. And, um, you know, so I guess, you know, why now, why are digital therapeutics kind of um, bubbling up? I think it's, it's a combination of sort of some of these groups doing a really good job of getting the message out as to what this, this concept is. And then a, you know, many, many years in the making of companies just trying to uh, convince payers, I think, especially that what they're working on uh, will produce positive patient outcomes and will actually help people. And so, you know, the term is really uh, attractive to anyone who's been fighting that fight for so long and, you know, want to become a part of the world of digital health that actually works and that actually um, helps people. I love that definition. <laughs> it works. Yeah. And I think about it when Brian and I chatted and we were considering collaborating on this, you know, we obviously started quite wide. We were like, okay, what do we want to talk about in digital health and digital therapeutics? And we just realized this, it's so noisy and we could just go down all kinds of rabbit holes. And we were like, okay, so let's just, you know, fixate on one smaller niche. And it makes sense because just like Brian described, I think these are the ones that you know, where it's quite literally what the name says it is. It's a therapeutic that's digital. So let's write about these. And, you know, these are the ones that actually doctors can give to their patients. So it just makes it all more tangible and real um, rather than just a blanket. Here's a remote monitoring thing that could do anything under the sun. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And we've, we've done a couple of these roundtables, you know, very interesting how COVID has kind of made telehealth mainstream and so you know physicians who maybe are healthcare professionals who didn't really know about it now kind of get it but but i think we face the same challenge with digital therapeutics to convince the mainstream you know my my perception is that it's this cool thing that's been talked about by a relatively small niche of people uh, and as an industry we have to really help you know you know on frontline healthcare professionals and those folks who are kind of administering these these uh these payer plans to understand what does it mean? Okay, so it works great, but, but like, what does that mean? Does that mean that people are gonna get, you know, what type of patients are gonna get better because of this or how much are we gonna save? So, so that's what we'd love to dig into now. So I mean, Chandana, you're, you're, you're the co-author on this. So why don't, we, why don't we kind of switch gears and kind of focus then on prescription uh, and prescription DTX and what that might mean if we were trying to explain this to either doctors or nurses or my mom about like okay why should why should they care about this yeah 
Yeah, it's a really hard one um, to kind of, dis yeah, and I, I hate to get hung up on definition, so we'll try not to do that. Uh, but I think at its, at its crux, a prescription digital therapeutic, and Brian, please jump in here, is what we're saying is there's a digital intervention which could either prevent a disease, it could help you manage a disease, or it could be the, the cure itself um, on its own as well. So it's doing one of those functions. It's clinically validated. In an ideal world, it's regulated. It's not necessarily true yet, um, but you know it should. And what it's doing is that because it's digital, it's a software, um, and it's bringing about some sort of behavior change along with possibly other physiological changes in your body. So that's that's it. But I don't think that'll convince your mom. I think it might be good enough for some of the clinical practitioners and others out there. Would you agree, Brian? Yeah, I, I think I'm, I don't write for the general population. I know a lot of journalists are really skilled at um, explaining things simply. And that's not a skill. I think as we've established, I'm good at finding things. I'm not necessarily great at explaining things. So that's something I'm always struggling with. But, um, you know, I, I think I think it's helpful also with the report, you know, being focused on prescription digital therapeutics to understand what, you know, how we came to define that just because we needed to draw an outline around it. And it's not as straightforward as maybe it sounds, but, um, you know, we, I think we came up with four buckets for prescription digital therapeutics yeah. and a little bit, this is a little U.S. centric. I think I'm, I'm very U.S. focused. So um, this may not be true everywhere, but I know in the U.S., you know, the FDA um, in some cases says this product, this intervention is not, it, it's risky enough that it needs to be prescribed. You can't just yeah. find this over the counter. Um, there needs to be some sort of um, prescriber, a, a health provider of some kind with prescription authority to say, you know, this is for you and, and you should use it. And, you know, they then have some, some oversight of your use of it. But um, so that's a pretty clear category. And there are, I think the main companies that I think of in this space as being prescription digital therapeutics today, the best examples are ones that are prescription only. And that um, typically is because they made a claim when they were going through the FDA that said their intervention treats the yeah. patient, mostly through software. So that's sort of the like very easy, cleanest way to think about this. But when you talk about prescription digital therapeutics, just because so many companies want to be digital therapeutics, and then some of them happen to be prescription, you end up having a broader category. And so there are some companies that are not regulated as prescription only, and you could get them over the counter, but the companies have decided, and I think in some cases for very good reasons, they want a physician or another healthcare provider to recommend it, or even in some cases prescribe it to people, even though they don't have to, even though it could be sold direct to consumer. And they do that maybe because they think it will uh, help the patient to have someone in the loop that's, that's a professional. Um, it could be they think it's going to be really hard to drive enrollment in their program if they don't have a provider involved in, like, in pushing it and suggesting it. Um, and so there's all kinds of reasons. But I think the other two categories, another one is um, in some cases, a company is regulated as prescription, but it's not because of the digital therapeutic. It might be the component of their product is, uh, you know, maybe they're, they're helping someone titrate their insulin and there's some, you know, a higher risk piece of their product that um, is really a medical calculator. It's not therapeutic. Yeah. It's, it's creating, you know, data that needs to be accurate. So um, they fall into this category because they also have a digital therapeutic, but you know, they're regulated for other reasons. Yeah. And, and so I think that kind of covers it. I mean, I think it's, it's sort of that world that this report focuses on and ends up being a pretty, pretty good chunk of companies in digital health and in digital therapeutics. But, um, yeah, but yeah, I, yeah. 
Yeah, I think we also look at one more category, which is a bit more future gazing. You know, they aspirationally want to be prescription digital therapeutics. But yeah, I thought it was a really interesting exercise because I hadn't really viewed this world through that lens. But when you really dig into it, and I know it was quite painstaking for us to, number one, make a comprehensive list of which are the true uh, prescription digital therapeutics products out there. And, you know, um, obviously that could be a reason for contention when you put it out there, but I think we feel quite comfortable with what we've put. And then just the categories you described there, um, I think it gives a really good foundation for how we think about this space. Yeah, absolutely. I think you should be fair in yourself, Brian. I think you've done a good job <laughs> at breaking down a very complicated thing into something that, you know, is, is crisp and clean. So you have the four categories uh, and you have, you know, a, a small number of players in each, which I think is great because you see these charts with like all these companies and it, they look nice, but it makes no, it makes no sense. Yeah. How do, how do you guys think about, um, you know, things like VR where, you know, it can be used There's some really interesting studies about it being used to help with pain management and, and you know, especially with, um, in, you know, kids and stuff like that. I mean, you see, do you see those types of things being incorporated here or is that a separate category? Yeah, I would say it qualifies, but, um, and it's a combination of a hardware and a software, right? So they have the, the device and then they have the app, but so it would qualify as a digital therapeutic, but if it's not gonna be prescribed or not yet, then it's not a prescription digital therapeutic. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. I, I think, um... I'm not sure if this made it into the report. You know, I mean, it's amazing how quickly this is still pretty, pretty new subsegment of digital health, but also it's it's moving so quickly. Like even in the last month or two, you know, I've learned a lot. Things feel like they're evolving very quickly. But um, anyway, yeah. So there's there's one way of thinking about this uh, that came from Brent Bond, who used to be CEO at Cognoa, and he recently joined Cognito as CEO. And you know, not hopefully I get this right since I'm attributing to him, but his you know his basic construct was there's sort of been three phases for digital therapeutics. And the first one was really focused on medication, just helping people take their medications, um, you know, what we used to call medication, medication adherence maybe. Um, and that was a lot of the early players in the space. And then mm -hmm. where we're at right now, I think most of what we see on the market today and what's in development are companies that are creating things that are um, really appified health coaching. So they take cognitive mm -hmm. behavioral therapy or something like that. It's typically CBT, but there are other flavors of behavioral therapy beyond that one. And they basically just automate what the human coach does today or used to do, yeah. and they put it into some kind of an app. Um, so those are typically on you know, a mobile device that could be on a computer, it doesn't really matter. Um, I think those are less frequently a VR-based you know, therapy, but, but they could be. And then you know, I think what's coming next is sort of the next wave. And I think long-term will probably be what we think of as digital therapeutics. I think these other pieces might find other, other places to live. You know, they may just be part of um, you know, you know, chronic condition management instead of digital therapeutics. But this next wave is much more difficult, I think, to explain for someone who's not a scientist. Um, but, you know, companies like Cognito and Cognoa and Achille are creating digital therapeutics that are, are not teaching you new behaviors. They're not trying to help you uh, learn new skills like, like a coach would. They are actually attempting anyway. And I think, you know, they've got the research. So if you can understand it, you know, read through it and see if they actually have proven it. But, you know, they're attempting to basically rewire your brain. And yeah. I think what, what Brent would say is at the protein level, 
And so via a series of, you know, using both light and sound and other things, they're actually um, treating you. And that's very different than having an app walk you through a coaching program. It's very different from something that, whether it's through reminders or just better understanding your life, helping you take your medication. Um, so to me, those are very three very clear yeah. um, categories of digital therapeutics and they're, they're not like each other at the product level. They're very, very different. Yeah, yeah. I, love, I love that breakdown. That's awesome. And the final one, if you think about it, like they're the purest ones because they like a drug treat you, but the reason that they're working in certain conditions is probably because there is no drug. And yeah, I mean, this, like, like you mentioned, neuroplasticity has been studied quite a bit. And I think that's kind of what they're working on. So yeah, it'll be super interesting to see. Um, Martin and I had a call as well. I won't name anyone, but like a couple of weeks ago with, with an interesting company, which is attempting to do the same thing, you know, working in the attention space, um, uh, autism and ADHD do exactly do this, you know, impact them through just, you're watching your regular movie, but it's just changing in color and in lighting and all of that to actually impact your brain. Right. Yeah, I think that's a good point too. This is mostly, and it's really interesting because it's mostly a pediatric population because of that neuroplasticity piece. It's just, that's the right time to really, I think you can see the most effect at that age. Um, that's not to say they won't figure out ways to do this with older populations later on, but it makes sense that most of these are starting with uh, therapeutic areas like ADHD and like autism. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, it won't, won't just, you know, won't end there. I think there's, there's a lot of, of other neurological conditions that they'll target as time goes on. But it's a great area to start because it, there's such an un, unmet clinical need, you know, the existing drugs are, are, aren't, you know, aren't covering a lot of the problems. There's a lot of, you know, our, our knowledge of the brain is so limited. And so if we can find these, you know, digital solutions that can really, you know, for digital natives, you think about the kid, you know, younger kids who just take to it straight away. I, I think that's just such an exciting space. But I love the way you've kind of broken it down those three phases, right? Because I think that helps clarify again, kind of what is it we're talking about and why does it matter? Um, so, but there's, there's some companies that are kind of drifting away a little bit as well. So Amada, for example, used to talk a lot about being a digital therapeutic and now they don't use that language anymore. Maybe that's just because the, because there's because there's so much noise in the market, um, or maybe there's other factors. I don't know. I don't know what your perspective is, Brian or Chandler. Yeah, no, I you know I think it's helpful to look at these through different lenses. I think in that case, you know, there's sort of the macro categories of product versus service, and I think digital therapeutics, especially prescription digital therapeutics, fit much more nicely into the product category. And I think when you start adding humans to the mix, you, you may still have a digital therapeutic at the core of what you're offering, but you're really now a services company. And I think companies like Omada, who have been at this for a long time, they absolutely have a digital therapeutic at their core. That's what their DPP program is. And I think they've done a lot of work to make that more effective and more personalized, you know, via technology and via just being a remote program that it's, you know, I would consider it a digital therapeutic but I understand that they see their path as becoming more of a virtual care provider. And if you're going down that path, you probably want to de-emphasize that you've got this, you know, this, this product and you want to focus on you know, the services component because healthcare is a services industry. I think everyone agrees people need to be involved, should be involved. It's better when they're involved, but that's not to say there aren't parts of healthcare that are products, you know, pharmaceuticals being a great example. And so I think uh, a lot of the, 
early digital therapeutics companies that have people running them who have come out of the pharma space. I think there are examples of companies that are much more focused on staying on that path and remaining a product company and maybe creating a portfolio of therapies versus going really deep in one space and creating a virtual, you know, yeah. care provider. Yeah. yeah, and I think we touched on that in the report. We kind of outlined two paths, Martin, that companies have taken, right? One is like the telemedicine route or, you know, which is what this is headed towards. And then there's the more pharma route, which is, hey, we're a treatment, right? So I think we're kind of seeing that happening organically, but probably going to take a few more years to, to take shape. But actually, Brian, on that, lots of the PDTs do have that human coaching element, but I think it's not really... Uh, sound too loud about though. Yeah, I, I think some people sort of toe the line, you know, and their companies, Big Health, I think is a good example of one that um, does not use human coaches, you know, so they've sort of made it clear, we think this, this works really well. Um, and for, you know, various strategic reasons, they're not going to add human coaches. Um, I think some companies do I think companies like Omada are going even further away and not even using the term anymore. So I mean, there's, there's a huge spectrum. And I think um, the point you just brought up, Sean and I, in the report, we talked about these two go-to-markets. I think that's, I think what you said is really interesting because the companies that are sort of exploring more of a telemedicine prescription route, I think um, in some cases are likely to sort of go deeper into the care services side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, one company that is in that, you know, I think Achilles is an example of one that seems like they're actually starting to layer in um, care services, which is sort of surprising to me. I didn't see them on that path a few years ago, but they, they clearly are now. Um, and then you look at Peer Therapeutics, you know, they were the first, I believe, to launch a D to C type channel. So, you know, they're basically marketing to consumers, getting people to uh, a website, which they can then connect via a virtual visit with a prescriber and get um, their DTX. So I still think that despite that go to market, they are clearly staying on this path of being a products company. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's still our services just to get people enrolled and get them in the program and everything. But I still think the therapy itself is not powered by humans. It's, re- it's really yeah. you know, powered by the software. Whereas with Achille, I don't know, it seems like they might evolve maybe more into yeah. care services company. It's, it's sort of TBD again. These companies, most of them have only been in the market for a year or less yeah. or maybe two years. So yeah. it's really hard to uh, kind of read the tea leaves at this stage just because it's, it's absolutely brand new and yeah. so much of it um, is still, still developing. Is that, is it, yeah, most of them are brand new. There's a couple that have been around, like WellDoc has been around for, for a while, right? Probably one of the first in the space. And Silver Cloud has probably been around, although probably not that big in the US until the last couple of years, but they've been, they've been kicking around for a while. And I suppose the question then is, you know, this, this idea about going to market, you know, do, do you see that the incumbents like on the product side, do you see the pharma guys being a good channel because some of those partnerships haven't really played out? Uh, and you know, if I'm a relatively small company in the space trying to go, you know, trying to create that go-to-market infrastructure is tough. And so, kind of curious, like how you think about working with the incumbent life sciences companies and you know, what your observations are there. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think that was sort of the big discussion in late 2019 when some of these partnerships started to unravel. I think really, again, still really early, but it seems like there's sort of that middle option is sort of gone. So um, I, I think the like the joint venture between digital therapeutics company and a pharma company is 
is what we're seeing less of. I think we're seeing companies that are working um, sort of as an outsourced innovation arm for a pharma company. And they basically create a product. And then I think in some of this, you know, again, it hasn't really gone to market yet, but maybe a good example is Arexo and Gaia. You know, Gaia developed these digital therapeutics and Arexo basically is now the exclusive licensee. Yeah. They take it and run with it. And like, I'm sure Gaia is still involved in helping keep it up to date, but it's, it's not really a joint venture. It's really a licensing sort of situation. Yeah. And then other companies, like Pear, um, you know, they, they broke up with Sandos and Novartis and they're now going it alone. Achille, I think in their R&D stages in their early years, they always believed they would get big pharma partners and go to market that way. And, you know, by the time they got to market, they've really come around uh, a 180 as they described it. And they're going entirely on their own, building their own, um, go to market. And even that has evolved. You know, they're not necessarily going to build a big sales team like a pharma company would do. Um, they are finding that maybe going the route of telemedicine and virtual visit prescriptions is is a better model for their therapy. So um, it's there. There is a spectrum, but I do think that centerpiece of sort of two partners coming together and, and figuring this out is, is sort of where it was in 2019. I don't see that anymore. I think that's much more rare. Yeah. Um, we we probably need to see how companies like uh, Click Therapeutics go to market with some of what they're doing with pharma companies. You know, they've got some. They've got a D2C product in the market today, but they've got a couple in the pipeline that should come out soon with some big name pharmas. Um, so I'm really curious what that looks like when it actually comes to market, but um, that might fill in that, that middle piece. But, but yeah, for now it's kind of go it alone or develop it and then sort of hand it off to a pharma partner to commercialize. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, even just based on some of the conversations with you know more recent or newer um, up-and-coming digital therapeutics companies, I guess. Yeah, it's really mixed. I don't think like pharma is their default go-to uh, partner anymore. I think there are a lot of them exploring other models or even just D2C. I can't remember who said it to me, but uh, they said if your um, go-to-market strategy depends on one partner, you're probably going to fail. But <laughs> So, Martin, I'm just looking at the time and... Okay, I thought we were only getting started, all right. Okay, so uh, what else? What else is in this report? What else have you? Some interesting, really interesting stuff coming out here. But what else did you find as you were doing this work? I feel like we were only on page two. <laughs> <laughs> what, are the, what are the big takeaways? Well, I, you know, I, I found a lot of the the work around the investment space and the clinical efficacy space that. Sean and her team did to be really fascinating. I mean, that's not, I haven't dug into that in any kind of comprehensive way. You know, I'll write about news now and again, but just to see some of those numbers and see those trends, I thought that was really, a really great um, core piece of the report. So I found that to be fascinating. Um, you know, I think some of the interesting, these are sort of just bullet points here and there throughout, but just looking at some of the policy that's developing around reimbursement, um, some of the regulatory changes, I think people are familiar with a lot of that. But then I think there's also some sort of little scoops uh, around, yeah, reimbursement and coding in the U.S. and how some of that's developing that um, I don't believe has report, been reported beyond exits and outcomes. So it's some of that's in that report as well. So, yeah, it's great. I mean, I'm really happy with it. And, um, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity to collaborate with you and the team. And it was a lot of fun and I learned a lot. Like, yeah, just coming back, Brian, it was such, a, such an amazing experience. Yeah, it was like every day we were just... Uh, learning so much and I think we had to have like huddles to say oh my god like this is new yeah. <laughs> what do we have to do about this so but man the highlights just like uh, Brian said you know we've compared and contrasted and looked at 
different frameworks for evidence generation around the globe, reimbursement regulation, again, EU, United States. We've even dug into, like, obviously, everybody's talking about formularies and, you know, all these products being named on them, but we've really dug into it and seen what does that mean and who's actually being um, prescribed or reimbursed through this. So there's, there's quite a few um, interesting pieces uh, peppered throughout. Yeah. Did you get some pricing as well? Did I see that? Yeah. That that's uh, Brian's um, investigative skills. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's some 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 individual product pricing that have been disclosed, and then um, there's a framework in there as well from from a couple of uh, you know real industry experts. Um, but just kind of looking at it from you know how do you compare pricing a yeah. prescription digital therapeutic product through the pharmacy benefit versus the medical benefit versus D 2 C, just sort of how can you kind of conceptualize the pricing on that. Which is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, the pricing stuff can be very controversial, I find, especially on social media yeah. and understandably, but I think that is, you know, a space that I, I track really carefully because, you know, hopefully we're all moving towards value-based care and, you know, the pricing is really based on, on outcomes. I think that's something, you know, we've all been talking about for who knows how long, but in the meantime, you know, getting these things paid for just so that they can continue to develop and, and actually help people given that most of them are developed for patient populations that don't have, you know, pharmaceuticals available to them or, or other forms of treatment. So there really is a clear unmet need, I think, for a lot of these therapies. So, um, you know, while we're waiting for value-based care to develop, I think uh, it's great that, that they can come to market and, and get paid for and reimbursed. Yeah, that's super. And in, one last question. So uh, you've been, you've been at this for a long time, 2008, right? So, You've seen digital health kind of blossom, and then you've seen the start of digital therapeutics. Like, where, where do you think we are in this marathon? Are we, you know, mile one, mile 10, mile 20? Where do you think we are in the digital therapeutics journey? Oh, that's tough. I mean, for digital health in general, I think nothing super insightful, but clearly, you know, this past year and a half has been um, a huge catalyst. You know, I think it, it it always feels like, you know, day one in digital health, you know, for the past, I'd say probably five years, it's felt that way. Okay. Um, it's just moving so quickly. I think what's funny, you know, um, Sean and I were talking about this before the call, when we sold Moby Health News in 2015, it felt like probably the year leading up to that sale that things were slowing down. And, you know, some of the numbers for investment in space were kind of peaking in 2013, 2014. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I kind of took a year or two off after I left Tim's in 2017 and, you know, I was working on other things, but it really is surprising to me how, how much the space has grown between 2015 when, when I left, you know, when I sold Moby Health News and then when I left Tim's in 2017 and, uh, you know, started up, you know, in 2019, it's just um, super surprising to me how big digital health has become, how important it is. And yeah. some of these companies posting, you know, 100 million revenue, annual revenues, um, you know, that's not just one or two companies now, there's a whole category of companies that are that size. So I think, um, it's, it really does feel like we're, we're just getting started again. So. Cool. Well, hopefully this report is just the start of more collaborations, which you know, we'll find other topics to dig into over the years. That'll be fun. Thank you. Welcome to the club, Brian. Once you're in, you can never leave. Great. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if we wrap up now, and I think I know the answer to this, but um, if 
you were not a journalist, if you were not in digital health, what would you rather be doing? Oh boy. Uh, yeah. I think Martin alluded to this earlier. So my plan, the day that I graduated from college was I knew I was going to journalism. And so I wanted to work at uh, a startup, learn how they did what they, what they did and then start my own thing and then sell that. And, you know, based on that first job, create a, a version of that company myself, sell it, and then use that money to start a brewery. That was my dream at the age of 21. Um, and so 17, 18 years later, I did some of that, but I never started the brewery. I think what one of the big things that's, that's changed is everyone has a brewery now. And there's something like, I don't know if they're closing because of the pandemic, but there's something like 10,000 of them in the U.S. now. <laughs> and when I, when I made that plan, I think there was a thousand, maybe a couple thousand, maybe less. So um, the world of craft brewing has changed quite a bit, too. So. I think I missed that. But um, if I had never gone down this path, maybe I would have found a way to start love, love brewing beer. It's a lot of fun. You know, yeah, I've done. Yeah, I don't know. We don't need to get into it, but I found ways to be a part of uh, the brewing community. And it's, you know, when I have time, you know, I've got two little kids now and uh, pretty busy. But yeah, a couple times a year, I still get to brew a beer. So it's a lot of fun. Can we wait to try one in person whenever that is? <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much, Brian. Yeah, thanks right. again, Brian. Good to see you. Thanks,